Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivigan companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. And on this episode, we have the hosts of the campfire and one of the proverbial Mount Rushmore heads of the paranormal podcast world, Jim Harold. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was uh, uh, very synchronistic. Yeah, uh, he, through sheer coincidence, managed to knock out half of our questions before we got a chance to ask them. Yeah. So uh, that was fun. That was a lot of, it was actually a really good conversation. We yeah. went some places I wasn't expecting. We actually drifted into true crime for longer than I expected. So thank you, Jay, yes! for doing that to me. <laughs> uh, but it's all right. You made me believe in aliens. You know, here, I, I already believed in murderers. There's a, <laughs> and, and for the record, n- neither of us made you believe in aliens. We just had you read material that then convinced you that aliens are in fact real. Also, did we make you believe in aliens, or did we make you believe in some sort of interdimensional trickster entity that sometimes masquerades as aliens? It also could just be our consciousness. Look, the point is I got to talk about stabbing. There yeah. is smoke coming out of Jay's ears right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's not. It's steam. <laughs> I, I really don't know what to make of that. I, what, is, what has happened to us? What have we done? Uh, what's happened is we've been doing this for... We've been in this basement for eight straight months recording. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I've been down here for eight straight hours today. Yeah, so we are losing our minds. That's the answer. So why don't we go and lose our minds with Jim Harold? Let's do it. All right. Enjoy. line with the jim harold thank you for joining us jim thank you i appreciate it uh it's an honor to be here well thank you very much for saying that um so getting right into our questions uh as we are a book club there's something we like to ask all our guests which is what are you reading and what type of books tend to catch your interest actually um right now believe it or not it's a fortuitous question because I'm rereading The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. <laughs> oh, we are familiar. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that was actually the first book we ever covered on this show. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I literally said, you know, uh, it was many years ago I read it before, and I said, I've got to revisit this. So I've been cheating a little bit and doing the Audible version, but uh, it really, um, and well, I'm sure we're going to get into theories and things, but it really... Uh, strengthens my faith that there's a trickster element to all this mm-hmm. stuff absolutely I'm, oh for sure i'm reading through a uh, trojan horse right now his, one of his mm-hmm. other books and uh mm-hmm. same thing i it, it ramps my paranoia up every time i read it a little mm-hmm. yep all right so uh thank you for that now getting into uh i guess what you do and what we do here um so the first question is simple why the paranormal uh what drew you to the topic and what is it about the topic that keeps you going after 17 years of podcasting well, um, really, it, uh, it, it was a genesis from when I was a little kid. And uh, that was a long time ago, by the way, guys. But <laughs> <laughs> I used to watch a show called In Search Of mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Leonard Nimoy. Oh, yeah. It goes oh, back man. to the 70s. Now, I was very, very young, mind you, like uh, elementary school kid. But, uh, but I used to love that show. And that, read, that led to, you know... Uh, reading about it, and every time I go to a library or I go to a bookstore when those still were around, uh, there's still some bookstores around, but uh, it, I would definitely gravitate towards that section, which was always too small, I might say. <laughs> and uh, in 2005, um, I had been working in radio uh, in the business side. And I was a frustrated broadcaster because that's why I went to school for it. But I never really got to do it in my career, which at that point, you know, uh, I had, you know, 
married, still am, mm -hmm. married, two kids, mortgage. You know, mm -hmm. I couldn't quit my business, my media business job to just go talk into a mic in Paducah, Kentucky or something right. like you used to have to do if you wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. And then I heard about this thing called podcasting, and I thought, ooh, ooh, I get to broadcast. This will be so much fun. What am I going to broadcast on? And I thought, oh, my goodness, the perfect topic. The thing, because I, I couldn't add it. You know, I'm a sports fan, but I can't add anything to sports. Politics, <laughs> uh, hey, I don't want everybody to hate me. Uh, <laughs> uh, Rory knows that gambit yeah. intimately. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> music, eh, I mean, you can't play music. You still can't play you know, BMI ASCAP music uh, mm -hmm. on a podcast, which is ridiculous. There's not some way we can work out that licensing. So I said, you know, what topic would be cool that I'm really not just doing it for the sake of doing it, but I have a true interest in it. And I'm like, no brainer, no duh, the paranormal. And to me, when I talk about the paranormal, I'm not just talking about, oh, uh, ghost adventurers mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. Everybody thinks these days, I think paranormal is just ghostly mm -hmm. and to me the paranormal when i started the first show the paranormal podcast that's how early it was yep. is um i meant ufos ghosts cryptic creatures head scratchers mm -hmm. metaphysical the whole wide gamut to me that's the paranormal i we agree very much here we, we tend to use john keel as a sort of a philosophical uh, kind of reference point through our discussions. And because of that, we often call it just the phenomenon, mm -hmm. as he uses it, meaning all paranormal or anomalous events. As my shirt says, UFOs, Mothman, ghosts, Bigfoot. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So kind of on that vein, though, uh, did you have any personal paranormal experiences during your time, either before or during the show or during your podcasting years, rather? Well, I'll tell you, I've always had like... I've never had the full body apparition, mm -hmm. but my family has had uh, experiences. I've had some weird synchronicities. That's what seems to happen to me mm -hmm. are weird synchronicities. Um, I'll just throw one out there. Uh, when I was dating my wife back in the 90s, when she wasn't my wife, we were going, <laughs> we went to an amusement park here in Ohio. I'm from Ohio, uh, Cedar Point. And, oh, yeah. um, I drove her back home and she lived with her folks. She was in grad school. Um, and, uh, she said that, you know, I'll ask my dad, you can sleep on the couch or whatever. And, you know, I was shy. I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. And she's like, you're going to fall asleep. Cause it's about 20 miles, uh, yeah, about 20 miles back to, uh, where I live. And, uh, anyway, uh, end up did sleeping on the couch. And it was a good thing. Cause I came back the next morning and the place had been shot up with an AK 47. Oh my God. Holy crap. And that's a honest to God, true story. And it turned out that our, uh, I lived in the front half of the house. The landlord's son lived in the back half. Unfortunately for him, he was there, wasn't hurt, but my microwave was, uh, <laughs> killed in action. <laughs> uh, I had a refrigerator that had a bullet to go through one side, do a ketchup bottle and out the other. But here's, here's where the synchronicity comes in. I normally would have been home every other night, but that particular night she, you know, asked me to, to sleep on the couch. I mean, it may have been a coincidence, but it was like, boy, that was a very fortunate coincidence. Right. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Very and fortunate. And by the way, by the way, it was a case of mistaken identity. Our house was dark blue. Their house was light blue under the amber street light at three o'clock in the morning. Their house looked white. Ours looked blue. Ours got shot up. Wow. Well, that that's certainly frightening. Yeah, uh, it is. But I and there's been other things that have happened. But one of the most remarkable stories, actually, in my family, actually calls me. It seems like we have a theme here with John Keel, but um, it actually sounds very Mothman like, and it's also was in West Virginia. <laughs> mm. Very very cool. My family, my family was originally from West Virginia, and uh, you know I was a baby basically. And, uh, so, uh, I'll age myself. I'm 52 guys. I'm old. Uh, but this must've been about 1970. Um, they were visiting my grandparents, my dad's parents. And, um, uh, my mom and dad decide they wanted to go out to the secluded area. Now I don't want to know why I don't want to know any <laughs> details. <laughs> no, thank you. But anyway, 
uh, they went, they parked. I think being a different time, my dad had a bottle of beer or two, which is not a good thing, but that sounds like what was going on. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, he had like a, I think a 1968 Buick LeSabre, which is kind of like a land yacht. And um, he said, there was this, they drove to this deserted area. There's nobody around. And you know, rural areas, when it's dark, it's dark. So anyway, no lights. All of a sudden, there's a flash of light. And then uh, the speedometer lights up. Okay. Uh, like you could read the speedometer and the clock by the light from whatever this thing is that's in the sky. Then my dad says he looks to his life, uh, left and sees a man with a welding mask with his hand up. Oh. And then my dad and mom basically greet, let's get out of here. And then my mom, and I'll kind of replicate her accent, she said, then I saw about seven or eight of the biggest birds I ever seen up on the side of the bank along the road. Oh, wow. And, you know, I heard this since I was a little kid. And years later, it's like, this is a freaking Mothman story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely is. And it's in West Virginia. Now it's a different part of West Virginia. It's up by the Maryland border. And my dad said he fully expected the next day to see something on the news or reading a newspaper or something about uh, some kind of explosion or something. Nothing. Interesting. Very, very yeah. interesting. Very interesting. You know, you know what I, I couldn't help but think about there is that a lot of the early Mothman sightings um, – were young couples out to do things that won't be mentioned. They were yeah. at, at the lover's exactly. lane. Um, yeah. A very similar setup to what Keel found in his investigations. And this was before I heard this when I was a little kid, like knee-high to grasshopper before I ever heard of Mothman, ever heard of uh, John Keel, you know, I, I mean, literally in elementary school. And I heard this story. And you still remember and, it now. So it was obviously yeah. one of those ones that's and, and, ingrained and in you. And to their credit, my dad's 86 now. Mm. He tells us exactly the same story. Unfortunately, my mom passed several years ago. But up until her death, she never changed that story. The only way they differ is my mom did not see the man with the, quote, welding mask. She didn't. She didn't. But she saw the light and she saw the weird birds. Well, and also the welding mask, uh, part of me wonders, I guess, what that actually looked like, you know, because think back then there wasn't a pop cultural idea of the spacemen or the saucers. Right. So right. what what did he actually see there? Could, he might have just put it into terms he could understand. Exactly. That's exactly the way I took it. So I think it's kind of in, it's built in, mm -hmm. it's baked in. And he also has, and I won't, I won't bore you with it, but he has a great ghost story that happened with him and his brother. And, um... I think hearing those stories from people you knew and trusted, and these were very kind of, I mean, I'm not casting aspersions, but salt of the earth people, uh, working uh, class people. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad was a steel worker. They weren't, you know, trying to figure out their chakras or sleeping with pyramids under their bed or anything. Mm. I mean, they were pretty straightforward folks. Mm. Very, very cool. Um, now, to jump back to what you were saying earlier uh, regarding, you, you tend to experience synchronicities. Um, mm -hmm. just out of curiosity, did you notice, have you noticed that there were more or less of them when you, uh, since you began starting podcasting, did they pick up after that point? I think they've picked up a little bit. Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing that happens and you probably heard this when, if you listen to the show is what, and it happened today too. Um, I will do the calls for campfire, Jim Harold's campfire, which is basically my show where people call in and, uh, share stories. And it'll just be an open calendar. We'll say, pick a date and we'll do the call. And a lot of times we'll get, let's say that I have six to eight calls in a session. We'll have two or three calls that go along a similar theme. But the thing is, is that these people don't know each other. Mm -hmm. We don't ask for certain types of stories in certain recording times. Uh, the most I'll ever do is say, if somebody tells a, like a UFO story, I'll say, hey, if you've got a great UFO story, you know, sign up, but I'll never say, okay, on Tuesdays, we're going to do this. And Thursdays, we're going to do that. No, it's totally random, but it's crazy how many times we'll have two and three callers talk about a similar theme. Like today, we just had two people talk about, and for lack of a, a better phrase, uh, two insane, uh, insane asylums, mm -hmm. um, that they, as young people decided that they were going to investigate 
And I had two stories like that today. I had Mm -hmm. eight callers and there were two stories. And there was a third story where somebody claimed that they heard a ghost speak in their ear or something speak in the ear in some kind of foreign tongue that they didn't understand. And then the one person who was investigating the one asylum said um, that the, that night his roommate said that he must've been very troubled because he started speaking in some kind of uh, indecipherable foreign tongue. So, so I mean, it's weird how even with the campfire itself, Sometimes I think this stuff kind of looks at you and says, yeah, uh, it's the old thing. Uh, you know, you notice them and they notice that you yeah. notice them. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's why I asked. Uh, we've we talked to a couple of paranormal podcasters and that's been a consistent theme. Once they started their show, activity in their life just picked up and picked up. Yeah. I mean, I'm not seeing ghosts or anything all the time or anything like that, but there have been some strange things. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like John Keel says. You give it, pay attention to the phenomenon, then the phenomenon starts acting back. You know. Well, and right. uh, not to uh, add to that synchronicity you experienced, but so just something funny that occurred to me uh, when I called into your show. I was going through my head of various experiences to share, and I came this close to telling you about experiences I had investigating an asylum when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, the Northville tunnels near us, or the Northville Mental uh, Hospital. There's a large tunnel system underneath where the hospital used to be that. If you're willing to pry back a grate, you can still get into. Okay, yep. controversial well, opinion. Humans need to stop digging tunnels under places where they live. It's, it's <laughs> only, it, it gets bad every single time. It's bad. You're, you're not wrong. Yep. The, the CMU tunnels are the darkest energy I have ever encountered in my life. I hate those things. All right. Well, uh, so moving forward. <laughs> so one thing we noticed, you've been involved in the paranormal community for uh, as long as, if, if not longer than the vast majority of people we've talked to um, since 2005, as you said. And in that time, have you noticed any changes or trends within the community itself or the types of people that you tend to, that you are interacting with or have calling into your show? And Or do you think that we're roughly in the same spot culturally regarding the paranormal as we were back then? I think that people are more uh, open to it and less uh, reluctant to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that has changed. I think, you know, and now there's a proliferation of podcasts and mm-hmm. things. That's certainly something that's changed. You see a lot of celebrities wanting to get into it. I just saw where, um, for example, I think, and I, I don't really know her story. Might might ask her on the show and get what her story is. For example, Stormy Daniels mm-hmm. uh, is is getting into the paranormal world, I see. Um, so there is a lot of people getting into it, whether it's as a content creator or if it's just people saying, hey, something happened to me. So I think it's, you know, I don't think I'm making any great revelation to say that it's, I think, just becoming more and more popular. I just hope that we don't, and you know, I, I think about this too, we don't lose our soul in the process. Mm-hmm. And remember that at the root of it, what we're all trying to figure out is what's going on with this wild world mm-hmm. <laughs> of ours. Um, and we don't get too wrapped up in the TV and the podcasts and all that. Because that's the thing, I mean, for th- me, this is my job now. and has been for, this will be my 10th year. Mm. But I always try to go back to that kid in elementary school who was watching Leonard Nimoy and wondering what in the world's up with Bigfoot, you know? (laughs) I mean, I always want to, I don't want to lose that. And I hope that we as a group of people don't lose that. But I will say I do feel encouraged because I think now people feel much less uh, fear in, in sharing their experiences. I think that they feel that uh, things, uh, are more accepting. Now I just have a, you know, a mildly successful podcast, so I can only be a tiny part of that. But if I am a tiny part of that, that's great. And now I think we're seeing it with UFOs. I mean, I've noticed that the proportion of UFO calls is going up slightly. And I think that part of it is uh, that I think there was a thing for a while where it was okay to see a ghost, but if you saw a UFO, Oh, you're crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah, the stigma and was still there. And now I think that that worm is starting to turn as well, which I think is a good thing. Very, very good. Um, no, very well put. I, I don't think you'll hear any disagreements here. Uh, now, but on the topic of the, the stigma you mentioned, 
So on our show, we've often encountered stories of respected academics, investigators, or researchers who suffered under that stigma of paranormal taboo. Uh, as such, we wanted to know if you've ever faced any sort of backlash or criticism for your interest in the paranormal, and what do you say to the dogmatic skeptic when you encounter one? Well, first of all, um, in terms of me, I've not gotten a lot of backlash, but when I told people that I worked with in media and things that I was going to quit my full-time job and, and start uh, full-time podcasting on the paranormal, uh, nobody directly said anything to me, but I knew, um, I knew they were pretty skeptical in their own right, not, not of the paranormal, but of my ability to make a career out of this. Mm -hmm. Even my own family. Uh, my, my dad will say, you know, your mom didn't like it when you quit your job and start doing this full time. And, uh, mom, wherever you are, you were wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe she hears me, but, but her heart was in the right place. She was worried for her son. Um, in, in terms, you, you asked me a second part that was very good and then I lost it. What was the second part uh, of the question? What do you say when you encounter the dogmatic skeptic? Me meaning not just regular skeptics, but people who have drawn that hard line in the sand right. and they will not cross it. Well, first of all, I firmly believe that people have a right to their own point of view. And if their own point of view is to disbelieve everything, uh, I'm, I'm of the old school. I believe that uh, your ability um, to throw a punch ends at my face. In other words, if you are a skeptic and you don't want to hear anything, you know, God bless you. That's okay. You don't have to agree with what I say. I wish you would listen, but if you won't, you know, there's some people who just have their minds made up. I mean, it goes right. to the hardcore skeptic or somebody maybe uh, is very devout and almost uh, fundamentalist in their approach to a religion. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're not going to listen to, well, maybe reality isn't what we think it is or, or whatever it might be. So they're not going to, so it's not my job to try to change your minds. You know, I would, if somebody confronted me and, and, and started, you know, disparaging me or something like that, which I think has only happened once. Wow. Um, I would just say, you have a right to your opinion. You have a right to think that I'm wrong, but you also, um, I think, have a duty to be a civil person. Right. So, I mean, that's where it at. Now, if somebody's willing to have a discussion, then let's have a discussion about the facts. I'll give you an example. Uh, relatively early on in the show, I had Dr. Michael Shermer on the show. And Shermer is, I don't know if he still is, but was the editor of Skeptic Magazine. Uh, you know, a hardcore scientist. He thinks this is all poppycock. But I got to tell you, yeah, we talked for probably almost an hour. He was a gentleman. He told me why, why I, he thought I was wrong. But he did so in a very, very nice way. And I really appreciated that. Now, the interesting thing about him, well, a couple of those things. One thing he said, which I've never understood, is, um, for example, uh, I, I said, well, Dr. Shermer, let's say that you're right. And let's say that the vast majority, the vast majority, 97%, and this is a paraphrase because this has been 13, 14 years ago, um, you're right, 97% of the stuff is totally explicable and there's nothing to it. What about that 3%? Why don't we look at that? And he's like, well, we know that exists, but we put that uh, scientist on the shelf. I'm like, what? <laughs> put it on the shelf. You need to take that down. You need to investigate it. You need to delve into it because, again, 3% or 1%, <laughs> you know, or a half a percent, that's, that's something. But I thought him to be a, a very gracious man. And um, also... Interestingly enough, and you can look this up, um, he wrote an article in Scientific American about a um, uh, something that seemed like it was paranormal that happened to him. And you can even, if you're reading the article, you can tell that he almost believes it was paranormal, but he doesn't want to admit it. Mm -hmm. So at the end, he's like, oh, these kind of things can shake a skeptic to his core. But of course it was but basically, the, here's the story. He, um, I'm assuming he got married later in life. And um, him and his wife um, were at this, uh, you know, at this, I don't know where their wedding was, but wherever they were, um, his, uh, his bride kept saying, well, I wish that my grandfather were here. I really miss my grandfather. So I guess they went back home or whatever. 
and she had an old radio that belonged to him. And that day it started playing, start playing music, that old radio. But the thing of that is the old radio never worked. And it worked that day. And he said, I think he said something about they danced to the music, the old radio, like as an homage to the grandfather. Mm -hmm. And guess what? After that day, it never worked again. Oh, wow. But of course, of course, that was just a coincidence. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just a coincidence (laughs) that the radio just worked that one time. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Yeah. And uh, I was trying to find it here. But I I mean, to me... um, you know, I, I don't think because somebody disagrees with me that makes them a bad person. I think now if somebody disagrees with me and has bad behavior, that might make them a bad person. If they were right. like, well, you have no right to believe that. And, you know, you know, all of those things. Yeah. Uh, that's that that makes you a person with bad behavior. I don't want to say a bad person, but a better person with bad behavior. But being skeptical in and of itself you know, my best friend's an atheist. Mm-hmm. So I, I, and doesn't believe in any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that I think he could be a great person and still be a hardcore skeptic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and same with goes to paranormal people. You know, there can be people who just, you know, they, I think that it's good to have a bit of skepticism. I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, do I believe that everything people think is a ghost is a ghost or everything people think is a Bigfoot is a Bigfoot. Uh, no, no, I don't. I think that, for example, on my campfire show, the vast majority of people are being 100% square and very sincere. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I think we just all need to respect each other. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly yeah. that very eloquently put. Uh, so on that same note, uh, we also know that you hosted Jim Harold's crime scene, uh, yes. in the way in the, in a bygone era. Wait, is that still running? I couldn't tell. No, it's not. Okay. And the funny thing is, is that I've just been thinking about reviving it. So it's so funny in the last ah. three days. So that's really weird that you asked me about that. That's Cause no funny. one ever asked me about that show. Uh, All right. I am I am our resident true crime person. I am trying to drag these two kicking and screaming into the worlds of murder and mayhem and they're both going like, "Jay, this is disgusting." And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> I never <laughs> said disgusting. disgusting. I said it makes me feel bad inside. <laughs> uh, but uh I wanted to ask you, in recent years the true crime community has start has started to come under a lot of uh a lot of fire, uh, a lot of people are beginning to criticize it as ghoulish or as inherently exploitative. Did you ever encounter criticisms like that? And do you think that there's any sort of validity to said criticisms? Well, I, I think it's not that you do try a true crime. It's how you do it, right? Yeah. And uh, I did 192 episodes of that show. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, now, the, the thing that was funny is I started doing that show before Serial. But the mistake that I made, if you're talking about as a media person, I, I did it as a plus podcast, a part of my plus uh, podcast which made it not available for the public. So maybe I would have been serial if I would have done that, but they, they do something different. They do a nice narrative. Uh, my show was just a uh, interview show. Uh, but I think it's like anything else. You can take it too far. I never really got much criticism because I always felt that I tried to treat it with respect. I mean, I basically did author interviews. So in fact, I was just listening to one the other day. I, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and we had the famous case of the torso murderer. And my elderly father was um, watching History Channel or something, and he said, did you know there was, and I grew up in the city of Cleveland in a Mm -hmm. kind of tough area, industrial kind of working class area. And literally some of these torso murders happened a half a mile from my house. Wow. So my dad's like, did you ever know that that happened down where we live? I said, not only did I know, Dad, I've read multiple books on it, and I interviewed the guy who was like the foremost expert, uh, and I interviewed him about eight years ago. And then I played it for him. He's like, I didn't know you did that. I'm like, yeah, I did. But uh, it was so funny you mentioned it. But back to your question. Um, I'm doing a little bit of a filibuster here. I'm sorry. Go um, right ahead. <laughs> um, I think it's all how you do it. And 
I think it can be exploitational if it's taken to an extreme. So I think you got to be really careful about it. And part of the reason that I stopped doing it wasn't that I felt that I was exploiting people, but it's pretty dark stuff. And, you know, after a while, it really gets to you. I mean, it is fascinating. I, that's a genre, you know, far as books and things I'm fascinated by. Um, I've always been fascinated by it. And I, I think it's like a Venn diagram. I think there's definitely an overlap between people interested in paranormal material and, uh, true crime material. I think that's for real. That's a, so there's two things that's funny about this whole thing that you just went through. Yeah. Did somebody just say that? Is that another synchronicity? Our follow-up question was whether or not you thought there was uh overlap between the paranormal and the true crime. Dun, dun, dun. But more than that, we've co- we covered Elliot Ness and the Mad Butcher, uh, the book, on our show. It is one of only two true crime books that we've done so far. So, so it's funny you brought that up. So it's really funny that you brought that up. But now I just have a follow up question because yeah. if you uh, if you, you know, like if you know that story, which I assume you do. So do you think do. Sweeney did it? <laughs> well, um, do, uh, now did you interview or talk to James Badal? who is like the foremost effort, but I think he thinks Sweeney did it. We, so, and the way that we read the book that was by, uh, uh, Collins and Schwartz. It's, it's more recent. It's called Elliot Ness and the Mad Butcher. It's more a, it, the Mad Butcher is a big part of it, but it's more a, a biopic of Elliot Ness in the post Capone years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a really quick aside about Elliot Ness. Uh, when, uh, I'm from Cleveland and there was in one particular area of town, there was a building, you know how they used to paint billboards on the sides of buildings? Mm-hmm. Yes. And this had to be in the eighties and it was still up. It's been torn down since I'm pretty sure there was an old building with a faded poster, Elliot Ness for mayor. <gasps> oh, wow. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. I mean, you Google, you Google it and look, uh, Elliot Ness for mayor sign and you'll see there's a picture uh, on Google of it, but th- that's that's kind of cool. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I had to get that in since you talked about Elliot Ness. No, no worries at all. That's so cool. No, I just I, that whole thing. It was just so funny because that that was like that's you know what like three things that have just <laughs> pinged yeah. off each other in a matter of minutes <laughs> about uh, what we've talked about. So that's funny. You brought your synchronicities with you. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, I, I keep them in a case right right over here. Now, the, the thing about that is now that brings up an interesting point. And I've talked to a lot of people about this, including people like FBI agents when I did that show, um, because 192 episodes, that's quite a few episodes. Uh, yeah. And I asked them if they, you know, I don't want to downplay the question of mental illness because mm-hmm. mental illness is real, mm-hmm. uh, obviously. And I don't want to ever, you know, just say, well, that person's obviously evil. But I asked several people. Uh, most of the expert guests, maybe not the authors as much, but if I were talking to an FBI agent or someone who had been a prosecutor or someone who had been in the system and dealt with people who committed these kind of crimes, I said, do you think evil's real? And they told me on more than one occasion, yes, I think it's real. It's a real thing. So, so then that gets into the whole paranormal thing. So I think there's a little bit of connection, but you've got to be really careful with that because a lot of times when you're dealing with these crimes, you're dealing with mental illness. Yeah, very much so. The the reason that I brought on like the torso case in particular is our first true crime book is because I was kind of like, it's unsolved. It's a mystery. We can talk about that. And then by the end of the book, I'm like, oh, Francis Sweeney definitely did this. uh, Okay, so Elliot Ness, if I remember correctly, had um, a lie detector done Mm -hmm. on Sweeney. Uh, and what was it? What was his name? Sundime. They called him Gaylord. Sundime was the uh, the uh, the pseudonym he used for him. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. But but the guy who did the lie detector, and we know that lie detectors aren't perfect. Mm-hmm. But when after he did the after Sweeney did the uh, lie detector, he said, "Well, this is your man, and uh, if I say anything else, I might as well throw my machine out the window." Yep. <laughs> yep. So. <laughs> so. And the thing is, is that, well, you guys know this, after Sweeney went to um, he was, a mental uh, institution? Yes, yeah. he yep. was committed by his cousin, Senator Sweeney, to a long-term mental health care facility where I believe he died. No more murders and yep. really wild letters and postcards to Ness yep. until yep. Ness died. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it seems, I, I mean... Again, and that's the other thing that's tough about true crime, particularly when you're 
you know, the one thing that does trouble me about true crime, and again, I did 192 episodes, so I'm not Simon Pure here, mm-hmm. but, you know, let's say particularly cases that are fresh or still going on or those kind of things. You know, people getting online and, you know, we're talking about people who are still alive or this has happened in the last five, ten years and speculating, well, I think this guy did it and I think that guy did it. And it's like, you know, that's okay if you're you're reading an Agatha Christie novel, but these are real people. Right. And you're kind of besmirching, that's, that's a 10 cent word, right? Besmirching, <laughs> their na- <laughs> besmirching their name. But then again, I'm fascinated by it too. I mm-hmm. just think you got to be careful how you do it. But then on the other hand, you have these armchair detectives, which could be incredibly destructive, but they've actually solved cases. The Golden State Killer, right? Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was uh, God, I can't remember her, uh, Michelle, Michelle McNamara. That was her name. Yes. Uh, it was Michelle McNamara who wrote the uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and a lot of the work that she did contributed to that case finally getting solved. That was Pat Oswald's wife, right? Yes. Yeah, she passed away. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Like as the book was in post production yep. and getting ready to be published, she passed away unexpectedly in the middle of the night. Yeah, a uh, very very cool. Uh, thank you for that. Um, that was great. That was a great little bit of conversation yeah. right there. So if we're ready to move back to paranormal stuff, uh, I have a kind of a loaded question for you. Um, so through the paranormal podcast and the campfire you've been inundated with potentially thousands of stories of firsthand accounts of the paranormal. And in all that time, have you drawn any kind of conclusions about the ultimate nature of the phenomenon? And do you see these phenomenon as interrelated or like the cheese? Do they stand alone? Hmm. (laughs) Well, first of all, I mean, I don't know if I would go full keel. In other words, I, I do believe, and maybe this is sentimentality on my part, but I do believe in an afterlife. Mm-hmm. I think that is a, a, a real thing. That, that was always the hardest part about Keel to me to rectify was that yeah. same thing. Yeah. Um, but I do believe there's a trickster element to it, and I think there could be some interrelation with some things. So I guess I would say I'm probably like 60% Keel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. But I, 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 I'm probably still holding on to some of my pet theories because I'm not... I'm not convinced Bigfoot is an interdimensional traveler. If And I will say, of the paranormal topics I cover, and I say this on the show openly, I'm more skeptical about something like Bigfoot than I am about anything else. Mm. Now, um, ocean creatures, sea creatures, I'm totally, I mean, that's just, that's just biology. Right. I mean, we know less about the deep ocean than we know about space. Yeah. So to me, it makes perfect sense that they're, quote, sea monsters out there that we don't know about. I mean, there's stuff washing up on the shores all the time. That's like, what's this? So that makes sense to me. Yeah, I feel like we discover a new fish every week. Yeah. Now, Bigfoot. Um, and again, I know the arguments, the arguments are, you know, the Bigfoot, you don't walk through the, you know, you don't walk through the forest and suddenly see a deer carcass. You know, they take care of their own. They go off to die, blah, 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 blah. I know all those arguments and it's just like not even a, you know, but some would say that there's been proof, but I mean, really proof that everybody can agree on. Uh, And, um, but on the other hand, for example, the Patterson Gimlin film, if you Mm. look at the enhancements of that, to me, that looks like muscle. That looks like fur. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, I mean, the, the, the original one at full speed and everything, it's just hard to tell that it could be a guy in a, in a gorilla suit or something. But when you look at it slowed down and stabilized, boy, that, that really gives it a whole new level to me. And it's like, so it's kind of like with Bigfoot, it depends on what day you ask me. It's that thigh jiggle. <laughs> it's funny yeah. that the, the thigh jiggle, when the Bigfoot takes a step, I saw the same similar footage. And someone had cropped and zoomed in on just the thigh, and you could see how kind of fat jiggled when it took a step. And I, I realized, like, I've been watching a five-minute video of a, of a Bigfoot's thigh jiggle over and over again. What is happening to my life? Yeah. <laughs> I, I have that at one point with every single book we read, where I just stop in the middle of it, and I'm just like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, so... Get back to the question. Um, have you, I mean, you said you have some of your own pet theories. 
Uh, have you drawn any conclusions or are you leaning towards any sorts of conclusions regarding uh, well, what those theories are, I guess? Well, um, I, 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 I think Ghost a lot of times replays. But I also wonder about a time element. I'll tell you a campfire story to kind of illustrate the concept. So um, there was um, a young man that called me that he said he had really two stories that were related. And the first story um, was when he was a little boy and he was walking through his house. And he was walking through the hallway. He's probably about six years old. He looks up and he sees a hooded figure making a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> and he ran away in fright, like, who in the world's in my kitchen making a peanut butter sandwich? The Grim Reaper? <laughs> and then, and then, a, then a few years later, he's a teenager. He's minding his own business. He's a little hungry. He's in the kitchen. He's making himself a peanut butter sandwich. And he looks in the hall, and there's this little figure running. Oh. Oh, interesting. So he was he, seeing his own ghost, kind yes. of. Yes fascinating yes yeah so what do you do with that and dave schrader um told a similar story and i don't remember it exactly about uh, an old lady seeing a ghost claiming she saw a ghost three men who ran in and ran out of her house and then after the lady passed these three guys went to do something at her house and they saw her sitting there you know so i mean <laughs> there's a couple stories like that floating around at least and I want to throw this out here now because I've been trying to think big and I don't know that we'll ever have the answers, but people think of the world possibly as a computer sim simulation. Now, let's think about this. In any step of human progress, if we don't understand something, we'll describe it in terms we can understand. So, um, you know, uh, to Nick's point earlier about my dad with the, the Mothman kind of story. The guy with the welding mask, that's how he knew to verbalize it. So we know how to verbalize a computer. But what is a programmer, but for its, his, his or her program, God? Mm -hmm. So when we say we're computer simulation, are we saying anything that much different than it? we have a creator who's created a world, a programmer who's created a program and we're all characters in it? Isn't kind of the same thing? I and then maybe yeah. some what we're seeing are glitches in the program mm -hmm. or Easter eggs or Easter eggs. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. We, we've yeah. often used uh, the expression system admins, yep. like for aliens, that they're coming in to check on the code and fix a bug. Yeah. And then the other thing is this idea of an Easter egg, kind of like, oh, let me throw something in there to, uh, you know, uh, mess, mess with the Sims, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, that, that's very interesting. Moving on to our next question. So you've been doing these shows for a long time now. Um, and in that time, have you ever been tempted to leave the recording booth and go do some paranormal investigation of your own? And if you could spend some time poking around any paranormal hotspot, where would you go? Well, two things. For the most part, no. And I'll tell you why. I mean, I wouldn't mind if I'm at a conference or something going on, if they're going to have a like, but I've never wanted to seriously go do it. And the reason is because I think there's a certain value. I, I think it makes me, um, you know, if you look at it from a business standpoint, I think it makes me a lot less marketable, mm. you know, because uh, uh, TV shows, those kind of things want to put you in that box and say, oh, you're a paranormal investigator. And you say, well, no, I'm not. But who cares what they think? I don't need them. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> my my idea is I like, not that I would be against it, like as a fun kind of, uh, you know, or even maybe reporting on it or something, going along with a group or something. But as far as doing it as a serious pursuit, I think I have more value doing what I do now because I think, you know, if you look at a football game, for example, American football game and or any sport pretty much these days. You've got the announcers who are professional broadcasters mm -hmm. and they have a certain distance. And then you have the people who were players, who were coaches and so forth. And the cool thing about that is I think the people who are players or coaches, they have a unique perspective, right? And I mm -hmm. think that's great. 
But I also think the professional broadcasters who did not play bring another perspective, and mm-hmm. that's valuable too. Yeah. And so I think for my role, it seems counterintuitive, but I think for me, I offer more by not being a paranormal investigator, being more like the the average person is like, okay, well, how does that work? Or what do you think this is? Rather than being the person saying, well, I did this research and here's what I think, if that makes sense. It it absolutely does. That's a very interesting way to think about it. I Mm -hmm. hadn't considered that. Now, kind of on that same thought, if you could go poking around any paranormal location, where would you go and and why? You know, actually, I would like to go to, and I hate this phrase, but I keep, you know, it's what it was called, the uh, Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. The reason is... I said my family was from West Virginia. We used to drive past that every year as a kid when we'd go visit my grandparents. And, you know, it was a less sensitive time. So there'd always, at that time, it was the West Virginia State Hospital. And there'd always be a joke, you know, hey, Jimmy, that's what they call me. Jimmy, we'll drop you off here. You know, (laughs) that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Not really thinking about these poor people inside. But that would be one that I would find fascinating simply because I was aware of it before I was aware of all this. That's a good choice. Um, okay, well, in the same line of thinking there, uh, if you could interview anyone, alive or dead, who and why, assuming someone that you have not interviewed yet? Actually, I'd go back to Keel. I mean, probably Jesus Christ. But <laughs> that, that is a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> assuming, assuming he was booked. Uh, probably Keel. I mean, that is also and a very good Art answer. And then Art Bell is uh, up there too. Because I got to say this, anytime that name comes up, and I know maybe for younger people, it doesn't have the same gravitas, but, um, and using another kind of dated reference at this point, but I look at Art Bell like the Johnny Carson of paranormal talk. So anybody, now there were talk show hosts before Johnny Carson, Steve Allen, Jack Parr, people like that. But Johnny Carson really set the standard and said, this is what a late night talk show looks like. Mm. And by the same token, there were people who talked about the paranormal on the radio before Art Bell, like Long John John Nebel in New York on WOR in the 60s, but uh, not full time. And Art Bell really set the standard and he created a whole genre, which he couldn't have imagined turned into podcasting largely. Of course, Coast to Coast AM is still a very big radio program Mm -hmm. and still very successful. But really that guy, anybody that gets behind one of these mics here and talks about this stuff, owes that guy a lot of gratitude Mm -hmm. because he, you know, he, he got the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. I I can't agree more. A lot of old Art Bell interviews are among my favorites to listen to when I'm preparing for episodes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So moving into our, our last question, this one uh, should be actually the easiest one. Uh, what's next for Jim? Do you have any th- any uh, pies in the oven that you care to share? And where can people find your stuff? Oh, sure. Well, first of all, um, you know, uh, the two main shows I do are Jim Harold's Campfire and the Paranormal Podcast. And those uh, most recent episodes, most recent episodes, 13 episodes are always free. So you can always listen to free content. I also have some uh, plus shows, but I don't even get to that. If you're new don't worry about that stuff. Listen to the free stuff. Jim Harold's Campfire and the Paranormal Podcast is where I would guide you. Campfire is basically people sharing their spooky stories, probably my most popular show. And then the Paranormal Podcast is where I interview great uh, experts and authors on their thoughts and theories of the paranormal. Uh, my daughter, this uh, last year, started a podcast called Unpleasant Dreams. And we did 15 episodes of that for the first season. And the second season of that's going to take off in April. And we're going to start with the Betty and Barney Hill case. Ah, Excellent. That'll be fun. Uh, So that's Unpleasant Dreams with Cassandra Harold. I'd recommend everybody check that out. That's a little bit more narrative with some Mm. sound design in the back, a little bit different kind of flavor of a podcast. And I kind of figured, you know, uh, people get a little tired of hearing from the middle-aged uh, guy. <laughs> so it's time for a new voice. And then uh, I'm starting a new podcast with my wife, which is non-paranormal called You Won't Believe What Happened to Me with people will call in with their non-paranormal incredible stories. Maybe they won the lottery or narrowly escaped death in a plane crash, you know, those kind of things. 
So uh, we're going to be launching that next month. Plus, I'm doing more and more on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Jim Harold. So, so uh, I hope everybody can check all that out. And uh, I really appreciate the time, guys. Uh, the website's jimherald.com, uh, J-I-M-H-A-R-O-L-D.com. And I've had so much fun with all of you talking about spooky stuff and the torso murderer <laughs> and so forth. It's It's really been enjoyable. And continued success with your program and and thanks thank again. you thank you very much thank you and it was a pleasure having you on thank you for all the the synchronicities that you brought with you too mm-hmm. i like i said they're right over here and i'll be, I'll be <laughs> taking them down i keep those in a secret safe place release them inside a, tra- a crowded train station just see what happens Ooh. probably a lot of it would get missed but one person one person in there is noticing and freaking out <laughs> so thank you very very much for giving us your time this evening jim Uh, Thank you for the rousing conversation. And until next time, it was nice chatting with you. Nice to chat with you guys.